the colonel went around behind me and I was not paying attention at all because I was focused on what was in front of me. I was focused on the, the open heart and the major and what he needed. And, but the next thing I knew the colonel had his hands on my breasts and I was shocked to the point that I, I couldn't, I wasn't breathing or speaking. I mean, it just took my breath away and my voice away. After the initial shock, I had to bring myself back to present, right? And focus on what I was doing. I realized what I was experiencing. That's when I realized it. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the Orban Foundation for Veterans.org and donations are always welcome at the Orban Foundation for Veterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Sarah Blum has put a lot of people together as a nurse, and she's put them together in a lot of different ways over the years, and she's still at it. I'm Scott Schultz. With Sarah today, Sarah is a veteran combat nurse. Good morning, Sarah. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you, Scott? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Sarah, you haven't stopped putting people together, even though you probably aren't doing anything like you did in Vietnam. If you could just give us a little background on the Vietnam side about uh, what you did there and where you were. Sure. So I was an operating room nurse at the 12th evacuation hospital that was at Coochie, Vietnam. And for people that don't know, Coochie is 35 miles northwest of the old Saigon and the new Ho Chi Minh City. It's actually between the big city. I'm going to call it Saigon just because that's what I remember the most between Saigon and Tainan. And it was on the edge of the Iron Triangle where all the fighting was in 1967 when I was there. It was right beside the Hobo Woods. So we had mass casualties pretty much all the time. My hospital was the largest user of fresh blood in all of Vietnam during the year that I was there. So that usually tells people a lot. We had helipad right out, right outside of the doors to the operating room and the triage area. And the helicopters would land. They were they were dust offs, and they were also gunships. And they would land, and they would offload their casualties right away, and then go right into triage, where they would do that. They would sort them, and triage them, and then they'd come right to us in the operating room. So we were getting them from wherever they were hit, and they'd be on the operating room table, really, with 
within a half hour of their wounding usually. How did you wind up there? Where did you come from and why did you wind up in Vietnam? Okay, I'm originally from New Jersey. I grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey before the casinos were there. I went to Albert Einstein Medical Center School of Nursing in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was a three-year program based at the hospital there. And so I went through that. And at the end of the three years, 1960, I became a nurse. I actually went home for a while to Atlantic City in 1960 for um, a couple years. I was a pediatric nurse at the hospital at home. Mm -hmm. And then I got the bug to go west. And I had some family out in California. So I went out to Los Angeles, California, and I worked at the Big Gray Monster, the Los Angeles County General Hospital, which is really good experience for somebody that's going to be working in a war zone. But I, at that point, I wasn't quite up for it. I didn't stay there very long. It was pretty horrible. And then then I went to work for Kaiser Foundation Hospital in Los Angeles. It was on Sunset Boulevard. And I went from 72 patients to 18 patients, much more manageable. And I could actually meet them, talk to them and work with them. And then I was there from 1963 to 1966. And I started hearing on the radio about Vietnam. And I had never heard of it, didn't know where it was or anything about it. But most of America. (laughs) When I was nine years old, Scott, I created a career booklet. And I was remembering that in my career booklet, I was a military nurse. I mean, I had all of them in there. Army, Navy, Air Force. In nursing school, in the middle of my three years of nursing school, I announced to my classmates, if there's ever another war and I'm single, I'll go. And then all of a sudden in 1966, that became a reality. I was single. I was dating, but I was single. And um, there was this thing going on in Vietnam that sounded like a war to me. Because our guys were getting, our guys were getting hit and they were getting killed. And so I went to, I first actually went to the Air Force recruiter. I thought I wanted to be a flight nurse. Mm-hmm. And I was too short. You had to be five foot two. I was only five feet tall. So I couldn't reach the top layer yeah. on the airplane. So that was out. So then I went to the Navy and I wanted to be on a hospital ship. And they said that was fine. But I had to spend two years in the Navy in the United States before they put me on a hospital ship. And I said, well, two years at the heck, it'll probably be over by then because I didn't know. Right. Yeah. Who knew? And so yeah. then I went. Then I went to the army and they said, we really need operating room nurses and we'll train you. I said, okay, where do I sign up? It's simple as that. It is. Any of the experiences that you had, could any of them have prepared you for what you stepped into? No, nothing. Even the five month operating room course, it Mm -hmm. did not, it did not prepare me for what I actually experienced. I mean, I, actually helped prepare other nurses because I'd already been there. So afterwards I could do that. And I think that's the best way. If I could have met a nurse that had been there, but it was so early in the war that I don't think that was available to me, but I did help. I did help prepare other nurses that were going over later after you prepared the nurses, help prepare the nurses going over. We talk about the war and we talk about putting pieces together in your work in the war. You and a lot of the other nurses 
had another kind of battle going on that stays with you and it's still a reality in the armed forces. That's sexual trauma. And tell me about how that was in your in your world in Vietnam. So actually, I didn't experience it in Vietnam. I experienced mm-hmm. it while I was in the operating room training course, my personal experience. It was totally shocking to me. It did happen, and I know that it probably was happening to other nurses elsewhere as well. I was scrubbed in on an open-heart surgery case. This was while I was in the training program, so I was at the Presidio of San Francisco, Letterman General Hospital. The way the surgery worked for that team was the major opened up the chest and did a lot of the surgical work, Mm -hmm. put the patient on the heart-lung machine, And then the colonel would come in and he would do the actual work on the heart, Mm -hmm. whatever needed to be done. So he'd come in and he'd done that and he was about to leave. So the major could finish up and close up. And he went, the colonel went around behind me and I was not paying attention at all because I was focused on what was in front of me. I was focused on the the open heart and the major and what he needed. And, but the next thing I knew, the colonel had his hands on my breasts and I was shocked to the point that I I couldn't, I wasn't breathing or speaking. I mean, it just took my breath away and my voice away. After the initial shock, I had to bring myself back to present, right? And focus on what I was yeah. doing. I realized what I was experiencing. That's when I realized it. Yeah. I said, this is what I said. I said, sir, if you don't take your hands off me, I'm going to break scrub. And that would have been a horrible thing for everybody. So he did. He took his hands off me and he left. The next day when I came into work, into the operating room, I was called into the, um, to the, I forget her name, but, um, the, whoever was in charge of the operating room suite, Mm -hmm. the, the nurse in charge, she said that he reported me for being insubordinate and that I would, I would never be able to be in his operating room ever again. I don't know if that affected my training at all because I think I'd gotten to the point with open heart surgery that I had pretty much done everything anyway. So that's how I learned about military sexual assault and retaliation. I learned it personally. It didn't have a long-term effect on me at the time. If I yeah. could jump in, Sarah, sure, and, and interrupt, I, I want to come right back to this point, but I find it interesting that you say the act took your voice away. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of irony in there for me thinking at least, and and especially with what happened afterwards, you being called on the carpet, mm-hmm. your voice was taken away in a lot of ways, not just in the moment, but you're almost voiceless when that, when it comes to that. It strikes me at least. Yes, that's true. Yeah. It was years later in 1996 I went on the very first Peace Trees Vietnam mission mm-hmm. out of Seattle, Washington. And I met Dana Perry. He passed, but this was 1996 uh, when I met him and he challenged me. He said to me at a gathering we were having from the Earth Stewards Network, and he challenged me to write about the woman's experience in Vietnam, in war. Mm-hmm. I was dabbling a little in that later on, but it was 2006 when I actually committed to writing 
the book that I ultimately wrote, I was with a woman who was an educator. She said that she was aware that I had a sole mission to write about women in the military and bring justice to them. I said that I actually had a a knowing of that, but that I really wasn't sure how to go about doing it. She said, just start, just start and the rest will come. And so I did that. I decided that I would start interviewing women veterans Uh from all the way from World War II, all the way through till the current day, which in 2006 included Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, in 2006, it was just Iraq. Later, it became Afghanistan. So I started interviewing women veterans. And what I did was I developed a set of questions that I wanted to ask them. And I had a card with those questions on it. And so the hardest part was finding women who were willing to talk to me. So in the beginning, I was focused on just telling women's stories. It had nothing to do with sexual assault. Mm -hmm. That came in later. So 2006, I started interviewing women veterans and maybe getting their stories. And in the course of getting some of those stories, I started to hear about sexual assault and sexual trauma from them. And it was, it was actually shocking to me, the kind of things they were describing to me. Mm-hmm. Even though I'd had my experience, what they were describing was so much worse. The more I heard those stories, the more committed I was. I had never written a book before, and it's a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. And I remember that the first thing I did when I thought I was going to do this was I sat down at the computer and I talked to God and I said, okay, I'm willing to do this if I know that I can write and that it's worthy, it's worthy of people reading. I sat down and I I said, basically, show me that I can write. And then my fingers were literally flying across the keyboard and I just let it happen. I just let it go. And they're flying across the keyboard and I waited until I got to a point where I felt like a bunch of stuff had been written. And then I stopped and I read what I wrote. And it was like an introduction kind of thing. I read it and I, my mouth fell open and I remember saying out loud, oh my gosh, wow. Okay, I guess I'll do it. And then the interviews over the years and I was writing what I could write and I started Yeah, it was just the stories. At that point, I think it was just the stories and an introduction. And in 2009, I turned over what I had to a guy from Seattle, an editor, and he looked through it and he gave me tons and tons of feedback. And he said, if you want this to go somewhere and to impact people, you need to look at these stories you have about sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. He said, You need to explore that and what is probably a culture of abuse toward women in the military. And that changed everything. Do you think without that prodding that it might have come along that that you might have done that? Or or would you have just continued writing about general experiences? No, I think he I think he needed to refocus me on that Mm -hmm. because I I'm not sure I would have gotten it. Uh, without him pointing it out and and giving me all the feedback that he gave me. It took me three months, three months of time to process 
all that he said and all that he'd given me and the, the new direction. It took me about three months to get it all um, inside me, congruent inside me that I could actually focus on that. I also had to contact a lot of the women whose stories weren't going to be in there because they weren't sexually assaulted. Women Under Fire was the result. Yeah, Women Under Fire, Abuse in the Military. Women Under Fire, Abuse in the Military. You interviewed these women from World War II into Iraq slash Afghanistan. You found a lot of things that never went away. They never changed or had they shifted or what did you find? Oh, gosh. Sexual assault toward women in the military is actually very rampant. It's horrific. There were like 20,000 a year. I figured out that it turned out to be about one every 20 minutes, something like that. You use the verb is. It's not something that's gone away. It hasn't. It hasn't gone away before Vietnam, but I'm not sure. But it became more and more horrific. In those days when I was actually writing it, it was probably at its peak. It hasn't gone down much, though. It's still happening. Yeah. There's a story in the book about women in Iraq who were literally dying of dehydration because they were afraid to get up to go to the latrine in the middle of the night because of the sound of the generators, which was where the all the rapes were happening. Oh, and their voices weren't heard because their generators were so loud. And so they wouldn't drink water, you know, into the, after nine o'clock at night, they wouldn't drink water and they dehydrated and, and died because of their fear of being raped by the generators where their voices wouldn't be heard. Again, voiceless. Yep. But you're not voiceless right now. You are on the circuit. It wasn't just writing the book. You didn't just uh, stop there. You're doing some advocacy work and some uh, eye-opening work. Tell us about some of the things you've been doing with that. When the book came out, I started speaking wherever I could, uh, all over the Pacific Northwest. And I was invited down to Texas. I actually met a guy that had come through the operating room when I was there. And um, he was in Texas and they had a Vietnam Veterans Memorial down there. And so I was invited to go speak there. And then I also went out to Wisconsin where you are. I went to the high ground. That was my first introduction to the high ground. I was invited to come out and speak, which I did. That was when they had the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall there. Mm -hmm. They also had the Canadian Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. And they also had the post 9-11 memorial during that time in uh, 2014 they also had an exhibit in the museum called women in war yes and i knew the woman who did the artwork she and i met kind of just i don't know a divine connection i guess you might say she called me one time before she was done with her her exhibit she said she was stuck her name is marissa roth r-o-t-h Mm-hmm. And she's a photojournalist and she was doing this project, Women in War, and she was stuck and she didn't really know where to go, what to do next. And she called me out of the blue. We talked for a long time on the phone. I remember that. She said, can I come see you? And I said, sure. And so she came, I think the next day or something. And she took some pictures of me and she said that until she met me, she didn't know where to go with the with the exhibit 
But after she met me, it was like that was the last piece and she needed to put it in place. So that whole exhibit was at the high ground during the same time that those other memorials were there and I was out there. So I was talking to people in the in the museum. I spoke to the, the group that was out there. I, I think I spoke at a couple of different places and uh, and then I told them when I when my next book comes out, <laughs> I'll come back. <laughs> it's not out yet. It's not pub- I it's finished, but it's not out yet. But um yeah. I came back in September of twenty twenty two. Right. That's when I facilitated a women veterans retreat. So they had nineteen women and all but three of them had been sexually assaulted in the military. I was blown away by the numbers. I expected a few, but I didn't expect that many. And at the high ground, they had always done, they'd done some retreats for women, but they were mostly activities. They never had a talking circle. Mm -hmm. And so I told them if I was going to come out and help, we needed to have talking circles. And so, and I said, and I'll do them. You don't have to worry about it. So at the first talking circle, here's all these women that I didn't know. And the way that I do a talking circle and make sure that it's safe um, is is kind of magical in a way. It just creates an atmosphere that makes it possible for women who've never talked about their assault to open up and share. And so that's what happened. They gave me, I think they gave me a half hour or something. And I think it went on for about two hours or more. Yeah. It just opened up. I have to tell you, you opened that group up. I also did one of the programs at that very retreat, the very yeah, last you day. You did a writing one, didn't you? I did a writing program, and I just was talking with some people again the other day about how shocked I was at how open that group is. I was shocked at the safety that that group felt. The writing that this group did and shared openly was incredible and eye-opening. I will say eye-opening. I like to think that I understand some of this stuff, but there's no way I can understand some of it. They they helped me understand, but you really created that safety and uh, their voices are opening. Is yep. that what you're seeing uh, when yeah. you're doing these things? Yeah, they're getting their voices back. Yeah, that's a great thing. Yeah, it is. And I think you were maybe just back a little bit ago again. Yeah, I went back June 14th. On the weekend, the 16th or the 18th, we did a retreat there at the high ground. And we did we did our circles again. It wasn't as large, wasn't as many women. I think it was more like around 12 or something. And some of the women already knew me because they'd come before. Right. And some were newer. But the same thing, they opened up and shared a lot. And then the second retreat Oh, oh, and we went to the Christine Center. We'd yes. never gone there before. I went to the Christine Center, and um, I also led them through doing some touch drawing, a unique way of uh, expressing. They got really into it. One woman did a tremendous amount of healing during the touch drawing. They all did express. They all got into it. Uh, but, you know, one woman in particular got, I think, got the most out of it. And then we went, uh, after that retreat, we went to um, the Strides Equestrian Center. So the, oh, the next time we went out to the Ice Age Trail, we were going to do hiking on the Ice Age Trail. And we stayed at a, a town hall in Holcomb. We had our tents out. We got tents and 
and all of our packs and everything. And we were going to hike for three days on the Ice Age Trail, but it turned out to be super hot, lots of ticks and lots of mosquitoes. And so the most we could do was two miles. We were originally going to do about six miles, but we did about two miles each day. And then the last day there was a storm coming in. And so we decided to leave early so everybody could get home before the storm hit. Again, the voices, you op- you're opening voices. People's voices are starting to be heard a bit more about this issue. But mm-hmm. it has to have more attention from the top, you're still saying, I'm, uh, as I understand it. It has to have, all the way to Washington, through the military service, some great attention and some changes have to yeah. occur. How do Definitely. we do that? Yes, they have to take reporting sexual assault out of the chain of command. That's number one. They have to hold offenders accountable for their behavior, and they're not doing that. Back in 2003, when they did the Iraq thing, they opened wide the doors for those men who would have gone to jail to instead enter the military. And so they have to clear the military of sexual predators. They have to have the heart and the mind and the dedication to do that because a lot of the perpetrators in the military are really excellent soldiers but nonetheless they're perpetrators and they they have to clear them out i do a a bi-monthly program online for women who were sexually assaulted in the military it's on mondays in the afternoons every other monday and about what time oh it's in the afternoons it's a free online circle it's an mst circle Mm-hmm. And it's the same as we do in person, except that it's online. And I send an email out to the women to send them a link. So if any woman is interested and she feels that it fits for her, that she's been sexually assaulted in the military in some way, she could contact me at my email address, N-U-R-S-E, scribe, nurse scribe, at Q.com. Okay. So it's N-U-R-S-E, S-C-R-I-B-E. Nursecribe at q.com. She can contact me, let me know uh, that she's interested, and I'll, I'll talk to her because I vet each woman that comes into the circle. Voices. We're going to be able to hear voices through you. This is great work you're doing, Sarah. And is it inspiring more folks to do this kind of work? Are the voices just starting to be heard? I think there have been voices along the way that have been heard. But the problem is there's hasn't been anything sustained. We'll keep working on that, right? Yep. Well, thanks for visiting with us today, Sarah. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for asking me. That's Sarah Blum, who is making voices be heard on the very important matter of military sexual trauma. On behalf of the entire crew at Stigma Free Vet Zone, I thank you all for listening. And as always, We'll remind you that if you find yourself in any kind of mental stress, if you find yourself having a hard time, do not be afraid to pick up that telephone and dial 988-PROMPT-1. Talk to somebody. Don't let your voice not be heard, no matter what the issue is. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Scott Schultz.
thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.